Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not weak. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations. For corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. This is Annie and Kim. Good morning, everyone. Yes, we're back for live broadcasting of Solidarity Breakfast after the summer break. Let's hope you had a good summer break. Did you, Kim? Or did you have a break? Um... (laughs) Not much of one. No. I'm having right. a good morning today, though. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's a charming morning. It's uh, crisp out there. It's not raining. It will rain, but not uh, quite yet. So, uh, actually, the rain was delicious yesterday after uh, having incredible levels of uh, heat and humidity. It was very nice to hear the pitter-patter of rain. Through. It was beautiful. And this morning I ran into my friend who's a tram driver and she said to me, "Have you? are you coming? just coming home, Kim? I was like, no, going to the radio. <laughs> That's right, going to the radio. Yeah, we should make an ad like that. <laughs> We're going to the radio, Solidarity Breakfast. Yes, Come I haven't in. been out all night. <laughs> uh, and today we're going to uh, focus on a whole lot of media messages this uh, week. Uh, like our... Um, as our opening says, that uh, if uh, you think the ABC is left wing, don't watch, uh, don't listen to this because, uh, and we're going to talk to uh, Chris Graham, editor of uh, New Matilda, about a story that they broke uh, over the last week regarding uh, uh, intimations of how the ABC isn't left wing and <laughs> becoming increasingly less so. Yes, about them going soft on um, Malcolm Turnbull when he was the communications minister and his NBN plan. Yes, and uh, what it might mean to uh, uh, be a journalist in the uh, uh, present uh, landscape uh, as we lead into the uh, potentially early election. Uh, some people are saying perhaps in May so that they can escape uh, any... Uh, feedback from uh, the uh, next budget, but uh, that's uh, another issue altogether. The uh, idea that uh, people can tell the truth uh, or actually lie to people's faces or bend the truth uh, seems to be a common theme through uh, media at the moment. So we're going to uh, talk to uh, Humphrey. Humphrey's going to come back uh, for the last part of the program. Uh, He's going to have a chat to us about... uh, uh, the misleading statements that are being uh, being put out, uh, by, especially in places like the Australian, regarding the reason for why we have such a low wages landscape and why unemployment is actually plaguing our shores. Uh, there seems to be some 
uh, notion that this could be attributed to uh, the the unstable Chinese market. But uh, we think that uh, we need to set the record straight regarding that. There's been quite a few really interesting things coming out over this last week. What about the Oxfam report? Pretty shocking. Pretty shocking. Uh, as it says, the uh, they've been doing a watching brief on the world's economy, and they're doing a you know almost a, a, a very blunt, uh, clear statement about how the uh, wealth of the poorest half of the world's population is falling, and has fallen since two thousand and ten a trillion dollars since. 2010, a drop of 41%. That's incredible. Yeah, and this has occurred despite the global population increasing by around 400 million people during that period. And meanwhile, the wealth of the richest 62, we're talking about 62 people, has increased by more than half a trillion dollars to $1.76 trillion dollars. They attribute this to uh, the uh, mechanisms for, uh, or they think that it would be a really good idea to alter tax haven legislation. I think it would be really good to get some figures about individuals on that, like a description of how exactly one rich person and how their wealth has increased and one poor person and how it has decreased because it's so difficult to understand those numbers i think yeah that's exactly right the thing that's not hard to um that re- to register is this notion of 62 people owning or uh, having control of that many assets and then then that flows through to saying those people if you follow the money those people have uh so much power, pol- policy power i Can mean you think it- of one bus full of people yeah, well, of course, that's what—that's exactly what uh, Russell Brand did in his film uh, *The Emperor's New Clothes*. He actually did that. That was one of the best things in that movie. He had the uh, a, a bus with uh, filled with people with the uh, faces of all the rich people themselves, and um, they were driving through a slum area in an African city. I hope they stoned them. Yeah. And the other thing that was very interesting in this report, which is kind of vaguely hilarious, is the report also shows how women are disproportionately affected by inequality. Of the current 62, 53 are men and just nine are women. So there's nine bastard women and 53 bastard men. I tell you, I don't feel that sorry for those rich women who didn't make it into that bus. <laughs> That's what I thought. I thought that's really hysterical. But the the thing that you might be interested in is that because uh, Oxfam does a, a pretty bloody good job when it does this sort of analysis for the rest of for the rest of us, they show that a progression. Uh, this is a fascinating progression. In two thousand and ten, it was three hundred and eighty eight people who were on that bus. Would have been several buses. And then on uh, 2011, it was 177, 177. So from one year to the next, there was a huge halving, it was a halving practically of the amount of the people on the bus. So they had to reduce the buses. Then 2012, it was 159, not quite so dramatic. 2013, it was 92. 
2014, it was 80, and now they've got a... They only need one bus now, 2015, that's 62. That's not fascinating, Annie. That's horrible. (laughs) Now, if you want to support the fabulous Oxfam or you want to know more about this report, you can go to oxfam.org forward slash and you can be part of the solution or at least you can be more knowledgeable about it. (laughs) You could be Superman holding back the dam. Or the bus. Or the bus. Uh, but there is a bit of positive news. Um, some wonderful uh, contributors, community contributors out there have uh, honoured Bill Della with a fabulous pr- publication of... Uh, it's a cartoon of Bill, and it's actually a fantastic book that uh, describes uh, Bill's legendary fights through his life. Anyway, oh, how lovely. And it is, it is wonderful. So if you want to buy a copy, listen to this. New illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website... 3cr.org.au or pick up your copy at the station. Well, isn't that a terrific uh, tribute to a great fellow? Yeah, it sounds gorgeous. I can see some pictures on the wall, actually. Yeah, well, I bought my copy, of course, and uh, I was hugely impressed. It's actually a beautiful production and it's... uh, it's, uh, it's very creative and uh, amusing. Everything about it's great. And uh, you will be uh, obviously uh, buying true history if you buy a copy of this book. So, as I say, you can get it at the um, uh, 3CR book uh, uh, online shop or you can uh, come in, drop in and get a copy. There's going to be a new... Uh, uh, delivery of them this morning at a uh, hundred copies, hot off the press. So there you go. Now, if you'd been listening to uh, the uh, program before this, which was uh, Stick Together, there was a report about the uh, MV Portland eviction, uh, the um, MUA workers who were tossed off the MV Portland ship. Uh, by 20 private or 30 private security guards that and this was Alcoa and the federal government in cahoots really uh it's uh, there's uh, there was a special a special license given to Alcoa uh, in October to allow them to use a foreign ship and with foreign labor to uh ply the um uh the Victorian water uh, uh, the Australian waters that uh, take uh, bauxite for, or minerals from Western Australia to Portland for the smelter. These are both um, facilities run by Alcoa, right? So the government actually actively involved themselves in an, another part of their plan to de- deregulate uh, Australian ports. That's what it's, their master plan is, and it's been going for a while. But anyway, I'll just have to uh, say that... Um, the uh, picket is continuing down at uh, Portland. 
they see themselves as being in the vanguard of uh, uh, telling Australians that they need to be aware that local jobs are absolutely in peril. And but the new piece of information is, of course, that the uh, indep- independent senators like Lambie and Madigan have uh, sent a please explain to the government because they don't believe that the uh, uh, Senate uh, has agreed to this push and uh, that they believe that the government's actually working against the wishes of the Senate, which is interesting, isn't it? It is, and we've seen this before, security guards on the walls, that's nothing new. I didn't realise Alcoa was so implicated in it. Yeah, well, that's uh, a very serious issue, isn't it? Because uh, what you've got is uh, different uh, multinationals uh, working with government to rearrange the furniture to uh, suit their processes. Um, And it's always been argued that when they do that, this will have a trickle-down effect to the working person. Like it did in Geelong. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, as someone who's from that area, they were there. Mm. Um, My dad worked at Alcoa for a little while and he talked about how whatever whatever chemicals they used, your feet would actually stick to the walls if you stuck your feet to the walls, whatever chemicals they were using. Oh, fantastic. Yes, and then they left and terrible unemployment in Geelong now. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So uh, the whole idea of the uh, trickle-down effect is a bit amusing in a very dark sort of a way. Anyway, so that was the uh, that's where that's at at the moment, except for the fact that uh, the fantastic Michaela Cash, who's who always leads with her chin, has uh, her latest her latest uh, uh, gaff is that she's now complaining that the CFMEU are using the law the legal system to bully, in inverted commas, their opponents. But there isn't a class war. No. Apparently. No class war. Amazing. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and uh, we'll be uh, here till nine o'clock. It's uh, such a perfect... Phil Oaks song that for that particular uh, thing and it gives us a chance to go to uh, talk to Steph about um, the uh, Royal Commission into Union Corruption and Governance, Steph Price. But before we do, tell us about uh, what you were telling me about swearing on the waterfront. Uh, Yes, the boss of DP World, um, which is a stevedore, um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna name and shame him, um, Paul <laughs> Scarra. He has he's talking big. He's saying that he's banning swearing on the waterfront. He says that he's going to clean up the culture by banning swearing. And I just think it's interesting this kind of social demagogy that they parade as um, changing culture and all this kind of nonsense. They're full of it. G'day, Steph. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you guys going? Good. Now, Steph, you're an editor of Red Flag and coming uh, with the next uh, Marxist conference, in, which is coming up in March. You're going to be delivering a talk about the developments out of the Royal Commission into Royal uh, Union Corruption and Governance. And so we'd love to know from you what your uh, perception is of what's going on in regards to this particular Royal Commission. Sure. Can I, can I just say that you, you're cutting out a little bit 
um, so I'm having a bit of trouble hearing you. I'm not okay, sure well, I'll, I'll talk uh, very clearly and loudly, but you're perfect, so you just talk. You're oh, okay, the one. Great. You're sure. the one that counts. Yep. So, well, I mean, what did you want me to just speak generally about the? Commission? Yeah, yeah. Tell us what's going on there. Well, I mean, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure your listeners, listeners have been sort of, you know, reading much of the um, media coverage about it since it delivered its um, final report, and I guess. Um, you know, one of the things that, that it's most interesting about it, if you sort of look beyond, um, you know, the prominent headlines that we're featuring in the in the couple of days afterwards, is really um, how it hasn't actually produced what what the government would have wanted out of it. So, you know, it's five thousand pages worth. Um, it's the product of two years worth of um, intensive investigative work by um, what many regard as the finest legal mind in, in Australia. Um, and a team of barristers and, and police solely dedicated to this task. And, you know, they've dredged up bits and pieces, um, but nothing near what the government, um, you know, would have would have hoped for in their wildest dreams. Is this why they've uh, concocted this uh, special report that only special eyes can look at? Sorry, what was that? I, I the special that. report that... Uh, Oh, yeah, I mean, that's quite extraordinary, isn't it? It's, it's This is sort of, you know, one of the chapters of this so-called public inquiry that was so critical for, um, you know, what, what the government argued was a, it was an important sector of society. So this is an, a major chapter of this report that um, nobody can see. And it's just become another way for um, the government basically to slander the unions because they say, look, we can't make this public because... Um, it would risk the lives of the um, witnesses named within it. Um, and it's obviously a completely unsubstantiated slander um, because no one can ever see what's inside it. It's extraordinarily undemocratic as well, given that, um, you know, this is apparently the product of this public inquiry. Um, and it's clearly being used at the moment as, as just a, as a political tool for the government because they're sort of saying to the crossbenchers that they're hoping to um, get on their side, look, we'll, we'll let you guys see it because we think it's damaging. But obviously to um, the Labor Party and to the public in general, um, you know, no way, no how. So what was meant to be the political purpose of this commission that they've has actually failed to do exactly what they wanted? Yeah, well, it's, it's obviously a pretty tried and true um, tactic of Liberal Prime Ministers, you know, pretty much for the last 20 years whenever... Any of them gets in, they, um, you know, uh, jimmy up a, a commission into the unions and they, they have, you know, different angles into it. So so it might be tax, it might be uh, criminality. And this one, they said, look, we're looking at uh, governance and financial affairs and those sorts of things. I mean, in practice, all they want to do is talk about so-called, you know, criminality and, and thuggery. But, you know, the way they justified it was... We want to look at governance. You know, we're interested in this. This, uh, you know, we're interested in the labour movement. We're interested in, you know, making sure that, um, you know, it's governed effectively for, you know, for the membership and that sort of thing. So the terms of reference really are focused around uh, financial affairs and, you know, those sorts of things. Had you uh, taken into account how the government and that side of politics? is using the Royal Commission as a stepping stone towards uh, besmirching uh, key unions to the point where 
different elements of the business community can then get its hands on things like superannuation. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a massive thing for um, for the government and for you know sections of business that there are these um, you know large you know essentially financial bodies that uh, unions have have or union bodies have a say over and. Yeah, much of that is overstated, though. The, the industry-run super funds are not, um, you know, they're not solely run run by unions. Union officials uh, are representatives on a number of the sort of bodies that, that run them, along with a number of um, employer representatives. But certainly the fact that unions have any involvement in anything of that significance is um, is an issue of irritation to, um, you know, to business, surely. But it's... But, uh, uh, look, I would... Oh, no. Go on. Sorry, you go. No, 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 that's right. Go. Now, what I was going to say was that there it seems to be a concerted effort to get rid of all uh, worker uh, say in any part of our society. So it's ideological. So you've got super uh, OH&S, uh, which is beautifully arranged to be a balance of power groupings within any business. So... Workers as well as bosses uh, need to work together to make it work. Now, that's under attack. Uh, super um, Industry-run super, which is also arranged on the same notion where you have a balance of uh, power or between the uh, workers and the employers, is also under attack. So what they appear to be saying is that we can use the law to get rid of the workers' voice in our society. Yes, um, certainly. I mean, in relation to the OH&S stuff, that was um, such an absolute feature of um, of the final report of the Royal Commission, which is interesting given that um, it was it's not listed in any of the terms of reference. So a number of commentators have pointed out how um, bizarre it is that you've spent two years talking about, um, you know, essentially um, financial matters, matters of corruption, you know, these these types of things, and then you, you've delivered um, some very significant and lengthy recommendations about the entitlement of um, union reps to enter uh, work sites for the purposes of inspecting, um, you know, safety conditions. Obviously, um, you know, this is a critical function of unions. It's a critical function um, of uh, workers' representation is to be able to have. Um, union representatives into sites to, uh, you know, consider safety standards, but more than that, just to access workers, um, just to organise workers. Unions have to be able to get onto site to do that. So um, I think the the focus, the clear focus on absolutely gutting those rights for, for unions, um, it really does indicate how clearly ideological this was, how, how clearly about um, pushing unions um, right to the margins as much as they, they could, um, this, you know, the report was, and as well, it, it shows how effective um, or how how troubling it is for bosses, you know, that unions can get onto site. It does actually disrupt what they're trying to do. I think it's interesting as well that basically you hear the hypocrisy coming from the government side saying condemning the unions for apparently ripping off their members, but then they're also attacking them for the CFMU in particular for protecting its workers and standing up for its workers. Um, a lot of the things that they've apparently found are not actually, that the unions have, unions have done are not actually illegal. Would you be able to speak to that? 
much of the recommendation. Well, I mean, yeah. It, well, for one, the the commission has it's it's not bound by any of the rules of evidence or anything that that you know a court would. It's 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 not a court, and and the commissioner makes this admission in his in his report a number of times. This is all just. Um, an expression of opinion, and this is the expression of a, a opinion of a particularly anti-union, um, anti-union guy. So, you know, what he does is express a whole series of opinions um, and makes a, a number of referrals to various other bodies. About half of the referrals are to um, police to investigate further. And based on, you know, what's set out in the report, you'd have to say, and I think most people agree, that um, most of the referrals you know, won't go anywhere. Obviously, there's a handful of things which are pretty clear-cut, you know, using credit cards for personal um, purchases, those things, you know, that's probably... Um, that's likely to result in charges. But the really, you know, the central stuff that, that they really went after the unions about, so, um, you know, um, most of the allegations against the CFMEU have gone and, and will go nowhere in terms of, um, you know, potential criminal liability. They've already had to drop the charges quite embarrassingly against um, the CFMU organiser, um, John Lomax, their star uh, witness against um, John Setka, um, Andrew Zaff, was quite embarrassingly um, revealed to be um, a, a pathological liar and um, concocted his entire story. Yeah, he's a bit disturbed. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and his mate came forward and said, look, actually, that was... A, that was the entirety of that was um, a fabrication. So, you know, a number of those sorts of things have been, in fact, quite um, embarrassing for the commission and won't um, won't go anywhere. And and in in many ways, this commission, in that sense, will be much more of a failure for you know the government that that arc that orchestrated it than um, you know similar commissions in the past. I mean, the Coal Royal Commission resulted in um, I think 200 referrals to police. You know, most of those went nowhere, but still. Um, you know, they were able to um, dredge up more even than, than this one. Well, the very interesting thing about this is that uh, despite the uh, paltry amount of actual issues that they've actually uncovered, and most of them could be actually dealt with by a by the police because they're criminal actions, yep. uh, they have successfully, you'd have to say, uh, thrown mud and some of it has stuck because actually it's governing by public relations, uh, by media. That's what seems to be using place, uh, elements like the Australian, that sort of stuff, to continually report stuff, and the uh, Herald Sun, to report stuff that isn't actually true. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It was it certainly wasn't front page news when um, the story broke that Andrew Zaff had stabbed himself in the arm, and it certainly <laughs> wasn't um, John Setka, as the story was. Um, you know, as the allegations against John Setka were, um, you know, uh, top of the the news, and it, it's obviously that, that sort of slandering and, and mud throwing, you know, sort of reached its peak in the last couple of years with the, this royal commission. It was going on. Um, you know, pretty much every day for the last two years, um, the commission will be sitting and, and churning out you know new stories for, for the media to print. But it's it's been the case um, for the you know at least the last decade in relation to the CFMEU in particular. Um, successive governments have you know been continually running um, this slander 
campaign against them about uh, criminality. And I was just reading the other day, um, the CFMEU has, has documented every time essentially a, a public representative, a police officer, a member of government would make an allegation of, of criminality against them, they would write to them and say, look, um, you know, we know you've made this allegation, you've not substantiated in the slightest. If you have any information, we ask that you um, go directly to police so that this can be investigated. And, and they never once received a response. And um, obviously, and you know, uh, the the person making the allegation never once um, went to police. So, you know, it's an extraordinary in one sense that, that unions um, uh, put up with slander that, that no other... Um, you know, sector of society uh, would have to or, or would accept. Yeah, well, it's a war, isn't it? Mm. And yeah, they haven't exactly. even threatened to sue like most of the politicians do. Well, yeah. no, so, yeah. you know, but see, if you use the law in that way, you impoverish yourself. It's, it's, it's not impossible to sue for defamation anyway, so you can't, it's very difficult. Yeah, anyway, so. and, and you know the interesting stuff, you know that saying about uh, there's no smoke without fire, which is what this is all premised on. I must say that when I went off and lived in the bush, I discovered there's plenty of times where there's smoke and no fire. <laughs> 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 Thanks for talking to us today, Steph. And uh, if anybody wants to be part of the Marxist Conference, they should go on to uh, their website, marxistconference.org, and you'll be able to hear more of uh, Steph Price's conversation about uh, the uh, Royal Commission into uh, the Liberal Party's Royal Commission into Union Governance. I'm not no longer going to say corruption. We can't remember their euphemisms. You're on. <laughs> OK. See ya. This is a call out to all you mob in Melbourne to come down and join us for Invasion Day, 26th of January, to join Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance and the Melbourne Koori community to mourn the genocide that has occurred in this country. The main rally will be at 11.30. Steps of Parliament, be there sharp, will be marching through the city. Bring your flags, your banners and your loud voices. Yeah, the smoking ceremony is going to be on at uh, 10 o'clock. <coughs> Excuse me, 10 o'clock down at uh, the uh, d- bottom of Tertiary Gardens, I think that's it. And then it moves up to the steps of um, Parliament House. So there's going to be speeches at about 11 or so. And uh, it should finish relatively um, early so that you can go and put kick your feet up. and uh, Hide under the bed. Hide under the bed, yeah. If uh, This is the way to go on uh, Invasion Day, the Tuesday, the uh, 26th of... Oh, I've got to have a cup, another cup of tea because um, it's early and I've got a frog in my throat. This is Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. Yes, um, I think it's quite incredible just <coughs> talking to people from overseas and someone come over and they're like, oh, I'm going to be here for, Aust- for Australia Day. It's like, it's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. We're describing it to her and she was very put off. Oh, anyway, I'll have to tell you that uh, on the 20th of uh, last uh, 
Wednesday, there was a uh, in, very an alternative to such an event, which was the commemoration of the uh, death of uh, T- uh, Tenaminawe and Malboy Wine, who which who were the first uh, people to be hung in uh, Melbourne, Melbourne town, in uh, 1842. They were two young Aboriginal men. On Bowens Lane in RMIT. That's right, in a little triangle there that is uh, proposed to become a a permanent memorial and it turns out to be the uh, first uh, of its kind in a capital city in Australia that commemorates the frontier wars. Isn't that incredible? Apparently there's a mass grave under the Queen Victoria market of Aboriginal people as well. Well, what happened? I'll explain. Uh, it, apparently it all started 11 years ago. Uh, it's been a, uh, a couple of uh, of the um, long-standing uh, councillors uh, have been involving themselves in the progress of this uh, call for a monument for over those years, negotiating it through to uh, to this fulfilment when last year it was actually passed Joe Toscano who is a com- uh, one of the members of the committee that uh the uh, community group that has been pushing this uh was convener on uh Wednesday there was uh it started 11 years ago and apparently it started with about 15 people standing there in the street being moved along by RMIT security who didn't know what they were up to and uh, a knot of people have to be removed, but, uh, but this time there was over 150 people, so it's uh, grown many times. And uh, there were speeches, uh, and uh, as Joe said, we need to get this to happen before the council changes, but, so he's hoping for, for June. And uh, then we all proceeded to walk on the road, without permit, I'll have to How say. How rude. How rude. Uh, down to uh, the exactly the space that you were talking about. Now, if anybody has been to uh, um, Big Market, you there was a curious thing which I hadn't really noticed before, but uh, when you go to the spot that is just over from where the toilet block is and where all the uh, undercover market is, the, ma- the majority part of it, to the left, there is a, uh, if you're looking at those, uh, the undercovered section, on the left, there's this row of sort of pseudo shops. And at the back of those pseudo shops is a very substantial wall, which at the bottom of it, it's it's brick, but also has incorporated basalt in there as well. So it's a very old wall. And that wall is actually demarcates the uh, original uh, burial uh Cemetery, the first cemetery in um, in in Melbourne, which is fascinating. I didn't realise. I'd never even. I've been there many times, and I've never noticed it. But that's where that wall is. And they just built over the cemetery. Yeah, yeah, they've built over the cemetery. That's where the car park is, which they're intending to develop, develop the eastern car park. And in one of the shops is actually where the. Uh, they think the bones of um, Tadaminoe and Malboy Winnie are because it's on the other side, the unconsecrated land. Oh, how horrible. <laughs> anyway, they gave a very vivid picture of what it was like. I sort of felt like I was imagining going back there because up that top of that hill, that little crest, which is uh, Bowen and uh, Franklin, uh, is it's on a hill. And um, apparently 5,000, it must have been everybody, came to the hanging, which was a very tawdry and awful event because they didn't die immediately. 
How horrific. And also, I think according Gary Foley was telling us on a, I think it was a tour, basically every single street is named after some bastard or other who killed Aboriginal people. Oh, that's awful. How That's shiver, that's shiver material. Shame job. And uh, it was pointed out that uh, uh, because a representative of the West Papuans who are fighting for their their country uh, came and talked and uh, it was pointed out that early this year that... Uh, at a memorial, uh, a, a flag ceremony in flag raising, flag ceremony. raising ceremony in West Papua, that sixteen people were murdered at that event. So uh, people have to realise that uh, these struggles are um, are one actually. So in order to commemorate, uh, to remember, uh, we'll pay uh, George Tallick. It's amazing how expensive freedom really is, Kim. Yes, it is. Um, And on that note, um, there is going to be a rally coming up next month on February 20th at uh, midday at the State Library, and it's against um, the cuts to Medicare. And it's pretty disastrous what the Turnbull Liberal government is proposing. They've announced plans to cut Medicare patient rebates for the important services in pathology that working class people usually use the most, um, including things like pap smears, urine and blood tests. And they're under these plans, women would have to pay up to $30 for um, a pap smear test. Now, of course, uh, people have ongoing uh, chronic illnesses as well. And if you think about those particular things that they're targeting, they it seems to me that these are the only real methods that our scientific medical process actually has to offer the majority of the people within our society, the diagnostic tools that are are able to actually identify the illnesses that people actually have. Well, exactly. And the people that this is going to affect the most are women, disabled people, disabled women, working class people and poor people, and anyone who has a chronic health issue. Is that really the people that you want to cut $650 million from? Mm. And it's very interesting because uh, this is uh, on a similar uh, tact. Uh, These attacks on people uh, are exactly the same kind of thing that's creeping up uh, within unemployment areas as well. The uh, This uh, card that they uh, want to give people uh, to quarantine their... Uh, oh, the basic cards. Yeah, the basic cards. They've decided that this is the best way to actually deal with... Uh, the, they're selling it as being a way of... Uh, uh, stopping drunkenness, the use of social security support for uh, things like uh, cigarettes and uh, alcohol now or gambling, I suppose. They're just using this uh, idea in general. But, of course, it means that it's going to be affecting everybody. So they began it, and this is something people should take into account, they began it by giving it to Aboriginal people. 
With the and Northern it, Territory intervention. Yeah, and it was so easy for people to believe that all Aboriginal people are, uh, are I don't know, it's, a, it's shocking uh, discrimination and stereotyping that goes on in relation to creating a card of this nature, saying that people who are of limited means need to be uh, corralled like children by these superior types who have lots of money. Well, they also used it to get Aboriginal people off their land because they would well, make Well, that's it, what it's for. Well, they'd make it that you had you could only buy you can only buy from certain shops that that's are approved right. and they're in the cities. And so what would happen and they're often more expensive and have less fresh food, healthy food. And so Aboriginal people would go to buy food, they'd have to leave their land and they'd have to travel for, you know, hours and then they wouldn't have enough money to get home. It's just but it's not. It, it's it, the thing about it is that people have to realise that we're all in it together. We go forward together, or we go backward together. And so, when they decide that they're going to these uh, apparatchiks decide that they're going to target their policies, are going to target one group of people, i.e., Indigenous people. They've now, and this is a perfect example. This basics card is a perfect example. They've gone from that to uh, certain regional areas. That uh, they've been piloting it in a couple of places in South Australia. Uh, some of the uh, council, and they want the councils to actually operate it within their system. Uh, even those, and some of them have said, no, we don't want to do this for all the various reasons that it's not actually going to fulfil the stated aim, right? So they set up this notion that it's to. Uh, curtail antisocial behaviour as if that is going to be a remedy, which of course it isn't because we already know how you can deal with antisocial behaviour. It just takes work and investment, social investment. But no, this is the quick fix. And now they're talking about it for whole regional areas of Australia. Well, I saw actually at, randomly a while ago at the Q Salvos, they had a sign out the front or on the window saying that they accept basic cards. Well, there you go. See, they're already involved, involving themselves in this. This is uh, an absolute uh, attack on the rights of Australian citizens and uh, it goes hand in hand with the sell-off of private, uh, public housing to private enterprises. Because they quarantine people's welfare to pay for their rent, so you have no control over whether you eat or how you pay your rent or when you decide to pay. So what is it? Uh, a huge amounts of people, uh, a whole percentage of, of the Australian population is now being corralled uh, against their wishes into this uh, submissive role within our society, dividing, divide and conquer. And this uh, is the ideology of this particular government continues to perpetrate these um, assaults on our, psy our psyches uh, and pretending that it's all for the good. Well, it's welfare quarantining again, which is what they did to the Aboriginals previously and that they apparently apologised for. Now they're doing it to the Aboriginal people again and they've included poor people in that as well. Well, it's, uh, it's uh, no, no self-empowerment here. This is the rollback from the, the, the uh, rollback 
all all the advances from the 60s and 70s are being rolled back and uh, people have to seriously believe, wonder if they want to be in the straitjacket of fundamentalist Christian ideology or if they want to actually be part of citizens in in a society. And on the alternative, of course, is you can be a customer and a consumer in a corporate paradise. Irony intended. You're on uh, 3CR with Annie and Kim. Solidarity Breakfast. Goldgrave Survival Day is in its ninth year and will be held on January the 26th at Borthwick Park, Benson Street, Belgrave. This year, we're excited to host the legendary and award-winning Kutcher Edwards and the Deans of Soul, as well as the Mula Mula Choir and Hip Hop Dancers. So come along from 12 noon and celebrate Survival Day. For more information, email survivalday at gmail.com. Goldgrave Survival Day is a 3CR supporter. And uh, to remind you that uh, there's a live coverage of uh, what goes on on down at uh, the Invasion Day uh, event uh, here in uh, the centre of Melbourne on 3CR in the morning on the 26th of uh, January if you can't get up and uh, get there. So tune in. Fantastic. You're going to tell us about something. We can't. We can't uh, raise uh, Chris Graham, the editor of uh, New Matilda. He's obviously uh, far away from his mobile phone, and and uh, it's fallen apart. So we're going to give you a little bit of the good oil on uh, what the big story was that came out of New Matilda last week. Yes, he's been very busy breaking a story, uh, which is about the ABC and their. Uh, coverage of the coalition's um, national broadband network um, plan, which, as we all know, um, is a little bit crap. No, yeah, it's <laughs> it's slower and more expensive than every other thing that's ever done anywhere else in the entire world. Yes, and it's also pointless <laughs> because you get a fibre optic network and then you uh, run it via cable to homes, which is just insane and makes um, the whole thing pointless. And the ABC's coverage of it, as people um, began to notice... um, And this is before the election. Yes, before the uh, 2013 election, uh, was rather tame. And as it turns out, uh, that was because journalists had been instructed by their bosses to go easy on Malcolm Turnbull hopefully in exchange um, for less savage attacks on the ABC, which, as well, we can a, see, didn't work out very well for them. No, no well, that's right. There's no point in um, lying doggo when when the monster's already on your neck. But, <laughs> but uh, no, there was a quite specific event. There was uh, the guy called Nick Ross who uh, was uh, a... Um, a the work. former games and technology editor. That's right. So he, he was in a good position to have an understanding of uh, which technologies are required to get uh, good uh, um, bandwidth and uh, speed on uh, the uh, fibre optics. But anyway, so he had prepared an article about uh, the copper system being crap 
and he was told by his uh, and it's a recorded a pri- a secret recording which is also an interest it can't be it really did happen but of course then you go into the logistics of um how dare you record me because uh, there's a certain amount of illegality yes <laughs> but anyway uh, but, but but by the by the the key issue is this that uh, his uh, immediate boss had uh, said to him that he wanted him to find negative stories about the Labor Party's policies on the same issue so that it could be held in reserve if the coalition were to attack the ABC for any negative stories about their own policy. Now, that... uh, So... Uh, talking to Chris Graham about this, the editor of New Matilda, what his his view, ex- as expressed to me, was that if you if you aren't being a journalist is a hard job, and uh, being able to uh, get out the information is something that is key to what you're supposed to be doing. Now, if it's if you can't manage to do it even if you are in an invidious position as the ABC is apparently in, then it's it's too hot the kitchen, get out. Piss off if you're, going, if you're not going to actually pull your weight. And uh, so if you're wondering what's going on in the ABC and if you've been getting the feeling that there's something sort of slightly not quite right or lukewarm about some of the information that's coming across, or more to the point, what's missing, what what you think could be there, or what's the slant they've decided to take. And uh, actually, over the last week uh, at 3CR, there's been certain instances of, uh, of this. So, for example, yesterday, the discussion about any news report about what's going on in Palestine. Well, you could almost predict what the script is going to be. You're going to have a lot of uh, pictures of young people throwing... Uh, stones, you know, this whole sort of a montage of aggression apparently coming from the Palestinians. Oh, you, would, you would think that seeing people throw, throwing stones means that they don't have guns. Yes. Well, yeah, logic's not applying here because it's about emotion, your emotion, how you feel. How would you feel if someone was throwing stones at you? And uh, it then goes on to the story will always be about how the uh, Palestinians are scary and uncontrollable and that uh, Israel has to defend itself from these. Uh, and it's just intractable. It's intractable. It's, it's a been bit going like on since yeah. time immemorial. immemorial. Which <laughs> that's right. So we know the story, right? And that's the ABC story and it's an SBS story, actually. Um, sometimes varied, sometimes varied on SBS. But the point is that... Uh, as uh, this particular story about uh, this is a method of controlling the news and uh, it's uh, as um, time changes, if, if people continue to allow these uh, kind of PR campaigns to uh, m- run our uh, news services in the way that they do, this one-sided approach to uh, when there's, we live in a diverse society, there are many sides, not just two. Yes, and I think there's also this attitude, and you see it in the unions a bit, but that if you compromise, that this will somehow appease them. But actually, with these people, if you compromise, they just see you as weak and they come back for more. 
Well, it certainly worked for uh, Chamberlain. <laughs> anyway, we'll come back with a little bit of sense with uh, young Humphrey. Hello, Humphrey. How are you? Hello there, and rightly so. What a what a song that is! What a terrifying song. <laughs> it certainly is. Good morning, Humphrey. Good morning. It's Kim. Yes. Now, well, uh, we've got you. Uh, th- uh, thank you very much for coming back to uh, talk to us on our first live program on uh, oh, 2016. Well, always a delight to be with you, Annie and Kim. That'll be good fun. <laughs> now I, I wish I, there was good news, though. I wish there was good news. Yes, don't we all? It's not going to be a good year for working people. Now, I, uh, I teased you with the notion that, and I'll tell the uh, listeners uh, what it was that I wanted you to talk to. Australia faces its slowest income growth in more than 50 years as the downturn in China hits wages and profits while sparking fears of a new global downturn. Now, David Uren, your economics editor at The Australian, he seems to be tying low wages and uh, unemployment and un, uh, unstable economy to purely to uh, uh, instability in China. Can you uh, talk to this, Humphrey? Well, yes. Uh, well, I think there are two important aspects to it. One is the China one, as you mentioned. Um, the other one which I think we do need to focus on as well is that this notion that there will be a decline in incomes is doubtless true. The question then becomes, whose income? <laughs> and this is a question of distribution. And that, in turn, is a question of the relative strength of the contending classes in any society. So if the working class is weak and divided and, you know, all of those things, um, then more of the burden in any of these crises or in any time is going to fall upon uh, working people. And here we have to get very clear in our minds what equality, what a decline in incomes truly would um, involve if there were to be any equality of sacrifice because in the 1930s depression their notion of equality of sacrifice was that everybody gave up 10 percent now if you're earning three thousand pound a year as the judges in the supreme court and the judge who was in charge of the arbitration court was able to do he lost 300 pound but 300 pound was more than a labourer would have earned in a year. So that even if the labourer had a job and he lost 10% uh, of that, he would have been losing about £20 out of his 200 that he was earning. So this is equal only if you think that the same percentage makes you equal in this. Now, you would think that for people on the left, that would be very clear. And it used to be. But I'm afraid a lot of it has been lost from sight. And I can give you a sad example. 
when the budget in 2014 was being argued over, Jed Carney, as head of the ACTU, and somebody I've got a lot of respect for, for what he's been able to do with a lot of opposition from inside the ACTU executive, she came up here to negotiate with the crossbenchers and people. And she gave a talk afterwards. And she said she'd been talking to Clive Palmer. And she said that uh, Palmer had said that he was happy to pay $2 million a year as his Medicare um, charge because he was earning $200 million. And she said, yes, it's, you know, this was fair. No, it's not. If, if Palmer and the like, anyone earning $200 million should be paying not $2 million, not 1%, which is what, you know, kind of people at the, at the low end of the income scale might be expected to pay, what Palmer should have been paying would have been $20 million. That would be fair. <laughs> that is progressive taxation. And we've lost a lot of that understanding of what progressive tax is. It's not that everybody pays the same percentage, so you then pay a larger absolute amount. It's a question of the more you earn, the bigger the percentage you contribute. And if we're going to think of a decline in incomes for whatever reason, whether China's involved or not, what we have to be very clear about from the start is that the percentage decline should be greater for those who, like the Prime Minister, have a billion dollars stashed away, rather than for people who, whose only asset is their ability to go to the payday lender and get another loan to see them through for the next seven days. It There's also, a vast difference between these. Yeah, it also economically it, makes, it doesn't make sense either because poor people go and they spend their money on basic necessities and that actually stimulates the economy whereas rich people will hide their money away. Yeah, well, indeed, and this is one of the critiques that you can make of the stimulus package that the ALP did in 2008-2009 when the crisis hit the first time. I mean, as an old-age pensioner, I got $1,200. Now, you know, somebody, you know, you know who were, you know, the pension, I think, was about $18,000 then, so, you know, $1,200 would be, you know, something that you're, you're likely to spend. Anyone who was also got as a result of Howard's, you know, games with making the pension more and more available to people with huge amounts of money, they also got $1,200. So it didn't matter what percentage of the pension you were on, you could be on a full pension or just getting $1 a week and you were still the beneficiary of this. But if you were on New Start, you did not get out of the ALP a single cent as a stimulus package. Now, who was most likely to spend the money and stimulate the economy, as you've just said? The people on New Start. So this is but the. They didn't uh, get anything. Yeah, so this is deserving poor and undeserving poor. Well, indeed. You know, <laughs> um, hey, you preempted me anyway, because you know the other thing that happened in the same newspaper? It said a bold plan to boost employment and wages. Company tax slashed to 22 cents in the dollar, while GST would rise to 15%. Yeah, well, I mean, this is, this is the other thing that we're going to talk, you know, that they are going to kind of talk up now that all the way to, way to stimulate everything is to cash, is to cut the tax on the rich to cut um, the um, yeah. uh, rates of um, um, 
company tax. Because there's the trickle-down effect. To, yeah, Trick- well, the first thing you might want to do is to get the buggers to pay some tax in the first, in the first place. place. <laughs> you know, because most of them wouldn't be anywhere near 22%. You know, they, have, they range their affairs in such a way. I mean, the sharing economy, Uber, is a tax dodge. There's a great article in Fortune magazine which shows that Uber is organised through 137 shelf companies, shell companies, to move the money around the world that they take out of the poor buggers who are having to put up their cars, etc., to make money for Uber. It ends up, the profit they take ends up in the Netherlands where they have to pay a tax of 1.5% on their total income. And, you know, there's so many things wrong with Uber that I, I just can't... I can't un, it just shows that P, the PR campaign that uh, talks about freedom and uh, your ability oh. to make money and all the rest oh. of it. I mean, what? just think on one thing. What if there was a crash? One person had a crash and you were injured as the passenger. And they have no insurance. Oh, just unbelievable. Well, I mean, they are trying, you know, but the ALP has here in, in the ACT and other parts of Australia, they just swallowed this whole. And their notion of the tax bit is to say, oh, well, the sharing drivers, because it all goes through their um, credit card system, we'll be able to track all their income. There'll be no cash in hand for them. We'll be able to get the tax out of them. Yes, but you won't be able to get the tax out of Uber itself because they've organised themselves through these shell shell companies to end up, as I say, paying 1.5% tax. That is not being raised. But the general point, we should come back to this, is that as things get worse, the struggle we have to have is that if there is to be any decline in incomes at all, it has to be properly shared. And that does not mean that everybody loses 10%. It means that the people on the bottom lose nothing, in fact, should be given something more, whereas the people on the top, they should be the ones who are not just paying 10%, but 20, 30 or 40%, because they've been ripping the system off to start with over the past you know, 10, 20 years. So that would be truly fair. But I fear that, as I said, even around the left, even with, with people like Ted Carney, who is... You know, open to these sorts of arguments and is somebody who does think about things. Even she had got sidelined, you know, blinded by this notion that Clive was doing the fair thing by paying the same percentage as somebody earning $30,000 a year. So we've got to get the notion of progressive tax and the flat rate taxes that the Medicare levy is, the flood levy, all of these levies that have been landed on people at the same flat rate, that is regressive taxation. And that we've got to get clear again. But to get to your first question, why is this going to happen? Well, of course, the Chinese economy is in serious trouble now. Over the years, when I've been talking on 3CR, your listeners will have heard me go on about this over and over. And if they go back to the things that we posted up there over the time, they'll be able to get some more of the uh, um, detail about this. Um, And during the course of the year, when talking to um, Lali once um, every four weeks and things, we'll be going back and dealing with this and Marx's analysis of why there is a crisis uh, over again. But the Chinese, of course, are not 
in a game simply by themselves. And their economy, by and large, had been based on exporting things to the rest of the world, and that means there has to be an effective demand for those things somewhere else. And as the rest of the world economy shrinks as well, and poor people can't afford to buy as much, then the demand for the kind of shoes and pants and other stuff that comes out of China um, is going to shrink as well. So the shrinkage of the Chinese economy, one of the drivers of it is, of course, the shrinkage of the global economy, that their demand for those things isn't going to be there. So we've got to look at that broader picture. And if you look at the at the developing countries, as they are called, you know, this kind of... you know. Um, uh, the the major one to begin to drive the economy forward. Well, what's happening in Brazil? Mardi Gras is they're so badly off there that the shops that were selling the Mardi Gras costumes don't have any customers, and people have gone back to making their own. Uh, mm. That the, that one indication of what's happening in in, in one of them. Uh, the the governor of the Reserve Bank of India said, I think yesterday, you know, or the day before, you know, depending on where the timeline is, that low interest rates were the driver of the new financial crisis that is about to hit. So there's um, India, which we've been speaking about what's happening in uh, uh, China, and that's kind of getting a lot of publicity here. But and then the poor old Russians, the poor old Russian people are in, I mean, as the oil price has gone down, one of the major earners for the Russian economy um, has really been blown out as um, as well because, you know, as oil price goes down from 90 to $30, uh, all of the um, sort of um, petroleum and the energy products that they're selling, they are falling as well. So there's a real blow to, to that part of the, of the global economy. The European situation in general, what... What put the share market up for the last couple of days? The, the, the mere suggestion by the head of the European um, Reserve Bank um, that in March, that is, you know, a few weeks away, they are considering pumping more money into the economy. That is to say, the European economy is going down the tubes, so therefore we're going to go further into debt, compound the problems that those economies already have because of the massive overhang of all these um, you know, excess capacity in the corporations and the enormous amount of, of, of indebtedness by these governments uh, already to try and keep the economies afloat over the last eight years, they're going to go further down that track. And that, miraculously, pushes up the share market. Now, now so, so Humphrey, I mean, I, mean I, I sit in this position thinking, God, perhaps we can actually have systems change because a disaster is afoot. Uh, what would a Marxist say about the position that uh, the... Uh, capitalist corporations uh, have actually got us to? Well, I think what you could say is what the young people in Spain have been saying is capitalism has failed us. You know, I, you know, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, 
what, what a Marxist would want to say is why this has happened, and we would want to go back beyond the financial crisis, get behind that, and see that while there was a financial crisis, and there may well be another one, the financial crisis, the whole financialization of the economy in the last 30 years has been because of a uh, um, the problems of finding areas to do productive investment in to find new ways of actually exploiting people to get surplus value out of them, to increase the real value of things rather than the speculative value. So what we have is a classic crisis of excess capacity. And, of course, none of the talk in the, you know, the front page of The Australian or anywhere else is going to take you there. You've got to look elsewhere to Marxian analyses of where the financial system fits into the productive economy. Uh, and that is something that really, these days, only a Marxist is able to continue to talk about. Now, what's likely to come out of this, um, in, in real political terms, takes us back to the point that I made at the very start. Um, Lenin said that capitalism can survive any crisis for as long as it can shift the burden onto working people. So the question we have to ask ourselves is how organised, what is the strength of the working class internationally? And you don't have to be a pessimist to look at the working class in Australia and around the world and say the level of organisation here, culturally, politically, industrially, um, ideologically, is... I mean, it's hard to think of a situation where it's been worse since perhaps the 1930s, when it was smashed by the Depression then. You know, we are in a very bad position to be able to fight back. But we did show in opposing work choices that if you do get organised, you can have that real effect. But we've, you know, you know, this is not a situation in which, oh, capitalism collapses, then we wake up tomorrow and we, you know, we're on the road to... Uh, socialism. Uh, there is no guarantee that a collapse of capitalism will of itself lead to a socialist future. That depends upon organisation and struggle by working people. And we are not in the best position to be able to start doing that again now. But as I say, there with, with the right organisation, and that means at the base um, as we saw through the Work Choices campaign where people got really organised in their workplaces and communities, that's what, we, that's, what, that's what we're going to need. But we've got to be clear again as to what the agenda, what we're asking for out of this and not get sidelined into, you know, into sort of you know, equality of sacrifice ideas and you know, other such disasters. As well, I think it's... it's um well, as you say, it's good to show what well, we've seen in history that the working class can come, organisation can come from nothing quite, or appear to come from nothing quite quickly. But we've got to wait for the signs to actually see whether that's happening. Well, yeah, but there's kind of, you know, the things that suddenly appear are usually the result, as Marx said in a different context, how well we know our friend the old mole who burrows underground to appear the revolution. But it's the burrowing underground. It's the things that don't appear to be happening 
when that's being organised. And that is what we have to be concerned about. The, what is happening in the workplaces and things like Uber, things like the sub-sub-subcontracting that's been going on throughout the economy, casualisation, temporary work, all of those things make it harder to organise in any workplace at all. Well, Partly yeah, the, the use, the use, overuse of visas to solve uh, labour, so-called labour shortages, is really now a ruse for uh, under um, underpaying uh, and uh, destroying uh, uh, conditions in yep. this country. Yeah. And of it, course, it is. And also, yeah. the thing about doing that means that you don't invest in long-term things, which is education. Well, I mean, it, it, it cuts into all of those areas so that, you know, you, you, know, you, you then destroy the opportunities for employment in, in the education sector here as well by, you know, the destruction of any kind of real technical education in the country. So what um, they're doing is creating a template for a slave class. Well, it's a wage slave class. Yeah. You know... Never let's forget that this is wage slavery. It is always wage slavery. Um, Marx used the term wage slavery to make it very clear that while you are free to sell your labour or to starve, that's where freedom begins and ends in a capitalist economy for people who do not own the means of production. Oh, so, that, that's uh, so it such... isn't just that. Sorry. I was going to say that's such a perfect way to finish the conversation because okay, uh, right. we've we've, all, we've just described how expensive freedom really is. Well, it's and a double-edged freedom that is only won by struggle. Yeah. Thank, thanks for talking to us this morning, Humphrey. Always a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye bye. Well, that is the end of the program. We've got uh, very little time to go. That's uh, for the first uh, live program for 2016. Thank you for coming in, Kim. Oh, thank you, Annie. <laughs> uh, we uh, were uh, we spoke to uh, Steph Price, who's the editor of uh, Reg Black. She's one of the editors. She's going to be speaking at Marxist conference in March. Which, if you haven't got your ticket for, there's some fabulous speakers. MarxistConference.org. Uh, if you want to find out more about it and buy a ticket, it's uh, it's becoming a humdinger of a conference, hasn't it? Yes, yes, and it, it has exhibitions. It has a whole range of fantastic things. Well, they just announced that, um, and his name escapes me. Uh, his first name is Omar, but he was the man who led the um, in Mexico the resistance to those students being killed. He's coming to speak at the conference. Oh, amazing! All right, so uh, and then of course we uh, rattled on about a variety of things, and uh, then we had the wonderful uh, Humphrey McQueen who. Uh, gave us a bit of a um, idea of a look into our future. Tax the rich. So. Tax the rich. Yeah, <laughs> cut their legs off. No, no, I didn't say that. He's got uh, us overexcited. Yeah, he's got us overexcited. And uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.